And uh, even saying that phrase, the two great wars, um, makes me feel like I'm, I'm back to my old job being a teacher. But we're not going to talk about World War I, World War II tonight. We're not going to talk about Archduke Franz Ferdinand, uh, the Western Front, the Weimar Republic, the policy of appeasement. Um, I'm sure you're all very relieved there's not going to be any homework. Now we're going to think about two um, different types of conflict that we have as God's people. One with others and one that is within. And so as we look at this passage, the first thing I want us to see is a war that needs to end. A war that needs to end. You were called to freedom, brothers, Paul says. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. If you look carefully at that verse and the one that uh, follows it, you'll see the kind of familial, relational language that Paul uses to describe his readers. They are brothers. They are family. Or look at the end of verse 13. He calls them to serve one another. And the New Testament is full of, of this kind of one another language. We get very used to it as um, Christians. And in verse 14, Paul speaks of love for neighbors. So God, through Paul, is calling these believers to be, I guess what we might call, other-centered Christians. But there was a problem in this church. And though they were called to live like this, well, they weren't. And instead, look at the the violent language that Paul uses to describe the way that they were treating one another. Um, He talks about the danger of biting, devouring one another. And he says there's a danger that if they do that, they'll be consumed by one another. And this is one of the things that can happen when we misunderstand the whole idea of Christian liberty. We hear talk in the gospel about freedom. And we like the sound of that kind of thing. We, but over time, it can lead us to act selfishly. And the fact that we've been forgiven by God is used sometimes as a, an opportunity to indulge in sinful patterns of behavior. And that word that Paul uses in verse 13, opportunity, it's a, a military term. Um, think um, beachhead or, or landing ground. I said I wouldn't talk about history, but when the Allies took the beaches of Normandy on D-Day, there was a sense that the, the war was basically over. They'd established a, a stronghold. And Paul sees something similar. This abuse of freedom, uh, this dangerous uh, thing that was uh, developing in this church, was in danger of giving the devil a foothold. And there was a danger that they would experience spiritual defeat. Their freedom was being used as an opportunity for the flesh. Now, you and I hear that word uh, or that phrase, flesh, the flesh, and I think we almost um, instinctively think of, of sexual immorality and Paul does not shy away from this in verse 19. We'll, we'll come to that uh, next week. But what he's describing here isn't so much about our bodies and how uh, we might abuse or, or misuse them, but our fallen nature. 
and what has been called the part of me that does not want to do what God wants. And even after we've put our trust in Jesus, we can be at war within ourselves. And this inner war, which we'll, we'll talk about more in the, in the second half of the sermon, it is a conflict that often spreads out. It, it impacts other people. And this is why there was a kind of civil war beginning, rumbling in this church. If you scan ahead to the verses um, that we'll focus on next time, you'll see the whole host of, of relational sins that Paul warns against. Um, do you see them? Um, enmity, verse 20, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, and on and on. In verse 26, he says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And one of the big issues in this church um, in Galatia was legalism. And when a group of people start to, to indulge in, in that sin, when they add things to the gospel that, that mark out who is in and who is not, well, they inevitably uh, start to look down on other people. And inevitably, they break into factions and they start to think of themselves as the real believers. And when we start to think like that, when we think as well that we can just live as we please and it doesn't really matter, well, conflict in a church, in a Christian community is inevitable. And the first time that um, I ever went to the circus um, was here in Dundee 30 years ago, and you've probably all seen the posters for the circus. And it was the Hungarian State Circus of 1992. It was amazing. Um, and I still don't know if um, this was part of the act or not, but um, someone was on the high wire and she slipped. Um, thankfully, she was okay. Um, but one of the, the best things about going to the circus or the fun fair is the dodgems. Um, the opportunity to, to kind of bash into your friends, your family, random strangers, and it's often a real highlight, isn't it? The dodgems. And in a sense, these Christians were um, beginning to act like that. And they were <clears throat> in danger of kind of bumping into each other, hurting each other. They were in danger of just caring about their own needs, their own desires. They were hurting one another. And the 70 grams of flesh in their mouths, their tongues, well, they were in danger of doing a lot of damage in this church. They were in danger of becoming Christian cannibals and eating their own. And maybe you think, well, Paul could be talking about Westminster um, or my workplace or my flatmates, but he, he can't really be talking about the church here, can he? But if you think that, you probably um, haven't been a Christian for very long. You haven't probably been around many churches. And this passage wouldn't be in God's word if it were not needed. I think Paul is teaching us here that we are not to engage in kind of dog-eat-dog -dog behavior in the church. 
how we speak to each other really matters to God. And this does not mean that we can't disagree with each other. It doesn't mean we can't speak about difficulties. It doesn't mean we can't disagree. But we are to be different from the Twitter mob. And we are called to serve one another in love. And this is the way we will fulfill the law. We're not saved by law-keeping. But once we are Christians, the law is a kind of rule of life, a, a pattern of life for us. And the very heart of the law is love. As Paul says in verse 14, the whole law is fulfilled in one word, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, maybe you notice um, in that quotation that Paul uh, gives, it's actually from Leviticus 19, that, that God is not actually mentioned. And maybe you think, well, isn't the fulfillment of the law, isn't the heart of the law to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to, to love our neighbor as ourself? Why has Paul kind of missed that? Why has Paul seemed to kind of leave out um, God well, some of the commentators pick up on this. It's the kind of thing uh, Bible commentators love to discuss and debate. And they think, and I think, that the reason Paul has chosen to focus on neighbors here is really deliberate. You see, listen to one commentator. And listen to Calvin. He writes this, God is invisible. But he represents himself to us in the brethren, that is Christians, and in their persons demands what is due to himself. It would be wrong in any person to separate our love of God from our love of men. And maybe you can hear what he's saying. We, we can't see God, can we? But we can see our fellow Christians. And if we claim to love the, the invisible God... Well, one of the signs that will be true is that we love our very visible brothers and sisters in Christ. See, cognitive dissonance. That is the phrase to describe the person who, who claims to love God, who's maybe very pious, but doesn't think it's that important to love a brother or sister in Christ. I think this, what um, Paul's uh, driving at here, I think what he's speaking about here will often mean very small things. But small things can make a very big difference. And listen to one commentator, Eugene Peterson. He says, we have the freedom to change a tone of voice. We have the freedom to write a sentence in a letter. Maybe today he would say in a text message or, or an email instead of a letter. We have the freedom to make a telephone call. We have the freedom to love that will fulfill the law. And so tonight, let's pray that more and more and more and more, we would be people who want to live like that. 
we would be people that whose relationships with one another would be marked by peace. Let's ask for God's help to be different to the world around us, which is so often just consumed by, by factions, by fighting. And as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, let's serve one another in love. So that's the first thing, a war that has to end. Second thing we see in this passage, though, is a war that never ends. I said I wouldn't talk about history. I've broken um, that uh, rule already, I think, maybe about two or three times. But history is full of battles, isn't it? Uh, that seem as if they'd go on forever. The, the Hundred Years' War of the 14th and 15th centuries, which lasted 116 years, four months, three weeks, and four days. But the conflict Paul introduces in verse 16 is even longer than that. It is not a battle with others so much. No, it is a battle within. It is a war that has been raging inside every believer since Genesis 3. And it is a war that goes on all the way through our Christian lives. And in verses um, 16 to 18, Paul highlights the two sides. He talks about the desires of the flesh, the desires of the spirit. These two sets of desires are very different to each other. In fact, Paul says in verse 17, they are opposed to each other. They are in opposition. Now, he's going to spell out what uh, they look like in verses 19 to 23. But for now, I simply want um, to focus on the conflict itself. The reality is that even after we've become Christians, and even after we've been Christians for decades, we can often feel really pulled in two directions. We're just like Mr. Stretch, and we want to live for God. And yet you and I often feel, don't we, the pull of our sinful nature. And this can be really discouraging when we start the Christian life. This can be really discouraging when you've been a Christian for a long time. But as is often said, though we are free from the penalty of sin, though we are free of the power of sin, we are not free as Christians from the presence of sin. We live in a, a sinful, a broken world. Each of us will have different besetting sins. And we also have someone we often forget. We also have an enemy. We have an enemy. One of the, the books that um, has helped me the most as a Christian, I think, I, I got given this book when I was in first year at um, Aberdeen University. Um, it's in my office upstairs, The Screwtape Letters. And in it, C.S. Lewis, he writes from the perspective of, of an older devil, Screwtape, to a younger devil, Wormwood. He's, he's schooling him in the art of tripping up Christians. And C.S. Lewis apparently said of all the books he wrote, that that book was the hardest to write. And maybe you can understand why, because what he was having to do was go on to enemy territory. He was having to think of life from, from a perspective totally opposed to the one 
that he was living. I think books like that, I think verses like these, I think they remind us that um, putting our faith in Jesus, being united to him by faith, well, that does not mean that we will have some kind of blissful existence. We will often battle with sin. And we will battle with sin in our teens, in our 20s, in our 30s, in our 90s. And the temptations may change, or maybe they won't. But as Paul puts it in verse 18, there will be things that we want to do but don't do. And yet, do you see the note of real confidence here? We are not fighting to to earn a victory. We are not fighting all by ourselves. No, someone else is involved in our fight, fighting with us, in us. See, look at verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And as you hear that verse, notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say, try really, really hard, all on your own, all by yourself. And if you do that, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That is how we often think of our sanctification. All down to me. God has has wiped the slate clean, but now what I have to do is just get to heaven with as few marks on my record as possible. No, everything has changed. You and I are new creations. If we are in Christ, the spirit of Christ is in us. That was not the case before we placed our trust in him. Something radical has changed in every Christian. And can you see how relational this is? It is not just a matter of of doing some isolated activities with no real reference to God. It's not about just ticking the right boxes so he won't punish us. No, we walk by the Spirit, verse 16. We are led by the Holy Spirit, verse 18. We live by the Spirit, verse 25. We are to keep in step with the Spirit, verse 26. Um, I really love um, walking with um, friends. And when you do that, you often have um, great conversations or, or maybe sometimes you're, you're more able to have difficult conversations when you're, when you're walking alongside one another. Walking is a very relational activity. And so is the Christian life. And we are, if we're Christians tonight, we are in Christ. And the spirit of Christ is in us. And we are called to walk in harmony with him. And if tonight you love Jesus, it is because of the work of God, the Holy Spirit in you. And if your eyes are beginning to be open to your need of Jesus, that is the work of the Holy Spirit too. And if you say to God, Abba, Father, 
If you do that, it is because God has sent the spirit of his son into your heart. See, as Christians, we are already pure in God's sight. We have the righteousness of Christ credited credited to us now. And so can you see how how different that perspective is to the person who thinks they they still have to do things to to earn a right standing with God? The New Testament ethic, if you like, it is be who you are. God has changed you. Walk in that way. Be who you are. And as we follow the Spirit's leading, as we rely on his help, we don't gratify the desires of the flesh. Even though we are in a war, we do make progress. And I think what Paul is encouraging us to do here is to believe that, to not give up. Even though the progress may may be slow, we will never be the finished article in this life, but our destiny, where we are going as Christians, is to be like Jesus. I wonder if you, or if I, really ever contemplate that truth. But that is our destiny as Christians, to be like him, to see his face, to be changed, to be what he has died to make us. And what I want to do now is to try and apply these things to maybe three types of people. Maybe you'll relate to one of these people in particular, or maybe you'll just be conflicted about which you are, and don't worry about that. I think the first person I'd want to apply this passage to is the Christian with a really sensitive conscience. The Christian who never really feels forgiven. Well, if that is you tonight, can you see some encouragement here? The fact that you and I often cry, what a wretched man or or woman I am. That is a sign that our faith is genuine. Don't let your conscience crush you. When you fail, and we do fail as Christians, you and I need to go straight to the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you know these words, let not conscience make you linger nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he, that's Jesus, requireth is to feel your need of him. Maybe that's you tonight. If it is, take heart. And I think the second group are those at the the kind of opposite end of the spectrum. I think there is a warning here. We'll see more of this um, next time. But I think there is a warning here for the Christian who's casual about sin. Maybe casual about the kind of of relational sins that we spoke about earlier. The person who, who treats these things as, well, not really that big a deal. If we are deliberately playing with sin, if we feel no need to repent then we need to be warned. 
You see, we cannot indulge in sin as Christians without consequences. And what is true in our relationships with others is true in our relationship with God. And so as someone put it, be killing sin or it will be killing you. But maybe you're in um, the third group. Maybe you're um, somewhere kind of in the middle. And maybe you are um, battling as a Christian tonight. And if that's so, then just remember this. The, the sign that your faith is maturing is, is not the absence of conflict. There is not some golden age in the future where you and I will never feel the pull of sin, not in this life. The Christian struggling with sin is someone that the Holy Spirit is at work in. And as you and I battle with sin as believers, remember what Paul says in verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. When we mess up, and we do, we need to remember that Christ has paid the penalty that we deserve, that on the cross he took all our sins on his back, sins past, sins future, and even sins present. Even the sins that you and I are maybe struggling with, maybe even tonight. And John Newton, um, he was someone who understood all of this. He was a, a former slave master. Um, he'd committed some really terrible um, sins against other people. But after his conversion, he became a trusted pastor. He became someone who was able to sympathize and encourage his flock because he knew the reality of sin in his own life. And so as we close, listen to um, these words from a hymn he wrote that we don't really sing. We don't really sing it because it's so honest. But listen to this, listen to his testimony. I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. Might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. You can hear his desire for godliness, can't you, in those words. He goes on, instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? And then comes God's answer. Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou may find thy all in me. Well, may it be so of us. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that one day, one great day, our fight, our struggle with sin will truly, will finally come to an end.
And thank you that when that happens, we will dwell in in wonderful peace and harmony um, together as your people. No more faults, no more mistakes, and no more regrets, but only peace, peace with you and peace with one another forever. Thank you that that is our future as your people. And so we pray, make us people who long and live for that day. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.